Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell. And today we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review 2004's time travel mind bender primer. And off the bat, if you're the kind of person who wants to watch a movie trailer before you actually watch a movie you haven't seen before, this one will cause a little bit of anxiety. Well, the trailer doesn't explain anything, but the movie doesn't explain anything either. That's a good point. I had to straight up, and you watched it as well, watch an after explanation of what had actually occurred because this movie is short and packed with plot and incredibly dense and it it's so hard to understand right the big thing so we, we talked about it at the end of the last episode primer is touted as like one of the best most accurate and most complex science fiction time travel movies ever made the time travel mechanics are as close to accurate as a concept that doesn't yet exist can be and the writer who is also the director editor and star of the film shane carruth just had no interest in making a movie where he was going to hold the audience's hand this is a big brain smart movie yeah but the trailer like after i watched it i was worried that this was going to be really bad it's not bad it's not bad it's in any way very hard to understand yes absolutely yes um so if you skipped the movie and are recounting on or if you skipped the film and are counting on us to explain it uh We'll, we'll do our best. Good luck. But Primer is the story of Abe and Aaron, a pair of engineers who accidentally discover time travel and begin using that as a way to make money easily. While one of them is very concerned about making sure that they don't break the universe... The other is a little morally flexible, and the film examines how time travel could actually happen, both from a physical scientific perspective as well as a moral implication perspective. I think that was my favorite part of the movie, was examining the ethics of time travel. So there's one example. Both uh, male characters are partnered, and they talk about the morals involved with telling their partners. And I can't remember which of the men because they're relatively interchangeable. They, to, It's really hard to differentiate them. Both of their names start with A. They're both nondescript garden variety white men. Yeah. Um, but one of them is for telling his partner and one of them is against telling partner. And the one that is for telling his partner is married. And so it's like that... I have to tell my wife. I tell her everything. I have to tell my wife. Right. And so to to try and make it as clear for people as possible, we've got Abe and Aaron. Aaron is married and he's the one with dark hair. And he is kind of the Weasleyer one of the two. Yes. And is the one who wants to tell his wife. Abe is the more fair-haired one who is very paranoid about temporal mechanics and time travel paradoxes and wants to basically do this as safely as possible while still doing it. Yes. Um, but that moment you're talking about when Aaron wants to like talk about his wife, he brings it up as a thing of like... He says it in the same way it would be like, oh, no, 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 I can't go paintballing on Friday. I have to run it by my wife first. Yeah. I have to run it by my wife that we're going to be time traveling and playing <laughs> the stock market and make sure like she knows and is okay with it. Which is funny because he is also the one who ends up messing around with time travel, time traveling back in time and not telling his engineer buddy and really kind of being 
the antagonist as much as we have an antagonist in this movie. Right. To look at it through the moral perspective, Abe is the good guy and Aaron very much comes across as the bad guy or at least the more self-serving guy. And I don't think we can actually really properly talk about this without just going through it completely. So spoilers if you care, but you're listening to this and you know how we do. So <laughs> like Abe or uh, Aaron rather throughout the entire See? movie. Yeah, oh, no, absolutely. They are very easy to intermix. Aaron very much throughout the movie comes across as just a little bit shadier, a little bit morally flexible, a little bit of like a, oh, I didn't mean to bring my cell phone back in time with me, but now that I have, I, I better use it or else I'll get in trouble. And then the twist comes along where you find out from the start of the time travel half of the movie Aaron has been one step ahead and has been controlling the events as best he can and completely just immediately failed the moral test that was presented to him and went instead for the most self-serving way of doing things and is the one who winds up abandoning his family because he knows that a different version of himself will be there for them. So that Aaron can go off and do whatever he wants and leave his family behind and never cares about that. Like the, you know, the climactic final scene, he throws it in Abe's face that maybe Abe loves Aaron's family more than Aaron does. And like, okay, yeah, you just, you stay here and you take care of him. Then like we have this magic power and you're not going to use it. Screw you. Yeah. And we see that Aaron doesn't learn his lesson because at the end of the movie he is building the same concept. I think he said he's going to South America or Australia, like somewhere completely yeah. off continent. And it shows him rebuilding the thing and he wants to try again and just get himself in more and more and more trouble. Right. It, it gives the implication that he's going to do this thing for wide scale, like, commercial gain use and is giving a whole warehouse full of engineers the blueprints for how to make the time travel box and is going to try to become the Steve Jobs of time travel. Yep. Yeah. So let me ask you, was it clear to you in the beginning of the movie what they were trying to make when they ended up making time travel? No, and I, I think that's very much the point. This movie, this is the first film by Shane Carruth and he hasn't made a whole lot of them but this was very much sort of a, like, first film in the script. Mm -hmm. Aside from the accurate and therefore intensely complicated and accurate time travel mechanics, like, the actual just, like, we're setting up a story part was, was pretty basic and pretty intentionally vague. I got the sense that they were trying to develop a new kind of refrigerator coolant. Mm -hmm. Like, they were trying to build a better freezer. Mm -hmm. They have a, a conversation where the four of them are sitting around a table talking about like airflow design. And then Aaron goes up and like sticks his head in his freezer and like makes some comment about its uh, functionality. And that is so fun to me because like the idea of just literally stumbling ass backwards into time travel is probably how it's going to happen. You know, actually, now that I think about it, I think you're right. Because there's one scene where Aaron's wife... There's one scene where Rachel, Aaron's wife, is getting ice out of the freezer to chew on it. And Aaron says, you know that stuff will kill you, right? You know that stuff's terrible for you. And she looks at him and says, is it worse if I crush it? And then she kind of like... Yeah. In the way that you do when your spouse is doing something dumb and you're like, but I want to do it anyway. Right. So I think they were maybe trying to build like a more environmentally friendly, less toxic freezer coolant. Yeah. And like it, it sets itself up in a way where like this is kind of the only way it can happen. It seems like Aaron Abe... And Robert and Philip, who actually don't matter at all, mm -mm. they're just the they're they're each they've got to be mechanical engineers of some kind. They have jobs, 
but they're also like doing these freelance projects in Aaron's garage and they each can kind of just like do whatever they want. And it looks like they're trying to come up with an invention that they can, you know, patent and be successful in that way. And it's Abe, which I think is so interesting, who is the one who actually like discovers the time travel and makes that be the thing. But I, I don't think at the start of the movie they're trying to do it. I think they literally just stumble into it mm-hmm. and then have to deal with the ramifications, mm-hmm. including the first thing is like, Philip and Robert don't matter because Aaron and Abe have a conversation. And it's like, no, I absolutely do not want them knowing about this. As few people as possible should know about this so that they can't mess it up for us. You want to put my camcorder inside the box? It's so dangerous we can't look into it. And I thought of a interesting way to see when I was watching the recap of how to understand this movie. The video made a point of saying, "Here are you should only focus on these characters. Here are the characters who don't matter at all." Mm-hmm. And with the exception of Rachel, anyone who matters has a biblical name so rachel is a biblical name but she doesn't matter in the long scheme of understanding the movie right um kara the girlfriend matters only tangentially in the fact that she has the party that's kind of hinging the whole situation on but everyone else that really matters has a biblical name so aaron abraham um, Robert and Philip don't matter. They're not biblical names. Mm-hmm. There's a Gabriel. There's a Thomas. Right, yeah. Thomas is the the guy they're trying to get funding for with these various projects. And, and Gabriel comes into it because they work for the Gabriel Corporation or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're right. Once uh, I clued in on the biblical names, it was very clearly intentional and it became like... Just, okay, look out for this. And, like, this movie... I think the reason I wind up liking this movie is because it... it, You tell somebody about it and it sounds like it's going to be this insanely technical, insanely, like, based off science thing. Mm -hmm. But in the actual watching of the film, it has this religious illusion component. Mm -hmm. Which is very fun just to, like, draw ties in the theme. Yeah, I thought I thought it was going to be this highly technical movie, but it's actually for something that's so jam-packed in there, it's actually the pace is really slow mm-hmm. and also the the back and forth between the two men is extremely um, philosophical and ethical and moral and they're talking about love and guilt and shame and money and commercialism and it's really not a super sciencey science movie no i and i think the biggest part of that is because they never stop to really explain yeah. like there's there's something about you need a, a a mixture of argon gas and there's something about them wearing oxygen tanks in the time travel boxes, which I, I actually like looked at something after the fact and somebody else had to explain that like the reason they do that is because the oxygen doesn't travel with them. So if they had time, Interesting. if they had, if they had tried to time travel without the oxygen masks, like their lungs would have exploded. Oh, fascinating. And it, it never tells you any of that. The most is like all the engineers have these like problem solving questions and conversations just about random stuff where they're talking about the thing and you never hear what the thing is. But oh, have you factored in for this, this, and this? And that was enjoyable because I've had those conversations at work just talking about like cameras and figuring out how to get the best shot for an interview but you're right they balance this tech talk which is really more window dressing than any than anything with the actual thematic beats of the movie Mm -hmm. which are all about more philosophical and moralistic points yes i think the only really technical about time travel piece we get is that there is one point in the film where they address 
if we want to time travel to a point, we have to go and make sure the box, as they keep calling it, the boxes are turned on at the point they want to travel to. Right. And and that's such a that's such a cool hook. And that's also one of the things I've heard is like the this is how time travel would actually be. Mm-hmm. Once you invent time travel, you cannot travel in time to any moment before the moment you invented time travel. Mm-hmm. It only works the one way. And they play with that in the movie, and that becomes a massive plot point about how there's the failsafe box, the secret box that was turned on before anything else and allows Aaron to go back to the very beginning and start manipulating events and record conversations and mess with time as as most as you actually can. But there's no going back to the Cretaceous period and having to deal with the problem of stepping on a bug and then you come back to modern day and there is no humanity because butterfly effect. Um, so there is no Doctor Whoing. <laughs> no, there is no wibbly wobbly timey wimey. <laughs> There's very defined. The stream goes de- this way. Yeah. Time travel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, that's a great way to think about it. <laughs> and you can't you can't travel in space, other than the fact that like we're always traveling in space. So factoring that in alone, you're already moving through space and you are in the same relative point, but that's got to be good enough. Yeah. So we've talked about the story. Technically, what did you think about it? Technically, it very much comes across as indie film, mm-hmm. but in a way I appreciate. The, okay. the budget for this movie was an estimated seven grand in 1999 so you know more money than i've ever had to play with and make a movie on but an infinitesimally minuscule budget for you know an actual project sure and so that's why like i don't think anybody in this movie was like an actual actor until this movie you know gave them a little bit of a career Mm -hmm. um all, it, it, it's another thing like Pusher where we're, we're shooting in people's homes. We don't have a set. Mm-hmm. They uh, they make very good use of a storage facility, which they probably were allowed to just go ahead and shoot anyway. Um, so they're very crafty with the money. But there's a lot of things that you just can't do on a seven grand budget. Yeah. You can't get the lighting right. The thing that... I think honestly bothered me the most watching it is the color tones. Oh my gosh. Kept yes. Changing. Yes. And there was no inconsistency. And I was trying to figure out if there was like supposed to be some meaning behind that where sometimes it's, it's blue color and sometimes it's orange and sometimes it's green, but it would be like between different shots. It would change from cool tones to warm tones. Mm-hmm. And there, there's no way there was an actual like purpose to that. It's just like, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're working with. But it did swing wildly from Wes Anderson to Christopher Nolan. It was just <laughs> yes. not consistent. And it was grainy. The camera work was beautiful. But the consistency of it was terrible. Right. You were asking me, there's a moment where they're in... Uh, one of their cars at night and they're driving along and you showed me that part of the movie and was like, is this supposed to look so grainy? And, or or you asked me why it looks so grainy or something like that. And it's because this was absolutely filmed on a digital camera, but unlike Danny Boyle, like he didn't, they didn't have film lighting to compensate for that. So in order to raise the light level inside the camera, you have to bring up everything so that, you're telling black to see more than just black and you wind up with that film grain look. Which it wasn't for the longest part in the movie. I was trying to figure out, okay, Oh, they're doing this on purpose. What era are they going for? And then they bring in cell phones and then they, because in the opening scene, they're in a relatively crap kitchen. Like the wood of the cabinets is very mid century modern there's a dishwasher, but it sounds old and clanky. Mm-hmm. 
all the men are because they're engineers are dressed really distinctively so i was like okay yeah. so when is this and then one of them pulls out a cell phone and i swear to god my mind just did my head did the exorcist thing where i was like <laughs> wait what right well and i mean the thing is it's a crappy cell phone it's a boxy cell phone yeah um this came out in 2004 and it actually took five years to edit so I think I, I think what Shane Carruth's idea was is set it modern day for 1999, and then this thing just it, it took five years to actually make it after it was done filming. Yeah. Um, so you wind up with this unclear timeline or mm-hmm. or place in time rather. How convenient for a movie about time travel. Mm-hmm. You know what? Yeah, and I, and if they wanted to make an argument, I'd be here for that. He could have used one and gone back to five. He could be in one of them right now. <laughs> um, speaking of the editing, and again, like wrapping up the the technical constraints, this is very weirdly edited, and I say weirdly instead of artistically because honestly that's more what i think it is there there's a thing where like you'll see the same shot three different times in a row kind of like weirdly time lapsed and it turns out that's because like they didn't have coverage they they only shot a bunch of these in one take and so they only had the one take of the scene and that is an editor's nightmare to be told that you don't have any choices and if something's wrong or if something doesn't actually make sense for the narrative construction, you don't have anywhere to go. So they did the best they could, but this was really kind of cobbled together. But it's still so good. It is. And I think that's why like this movie... Uh, 16 years later is is still remembered and, and still considered like a triumph for for what they were able to do it is really good and the thing that fascinates me is like the the guy Shane Carruth like he was like a mathematical engineer or something who just decided he was going to make the best time travel movie like this is very much his baby and his first project and before that he was just a guy interesting so speaking of careers i did find it funny that at one point in the movie when they when they first discover it and first like perfect the the whole process they go out and they get steak that's what they do that is their triumph they get steak and they make it a moment, like like they're trying to, they gotta go to the office and something, and, and Aaron is like, or no, it's Abe is like, hey, do you do you want to get a steak after this? And Aaron's like, no, what are you talking? No, I don't want to get a steak. Let's get some tacos on the way there. Like we have work to do. And Abe's like, no, no, no. We can get tacos on the way there, or we can go there and then we can get a steak. Yeah, it's like it's made into this thing. And. That is, it, it's fun because, like, the steak dinner, just as a concept, is, I think, a little bit of a mark of, like, you did good, here's your reward. It's it's the adult equivalent of, you won the Little League game, so we're going for pizza. Pizza! Yeah. No, that's true. But I think that is indicative of, kind of, Aaron and Abe's relationship and how casually they're entering into this thing Mm. because i don't i really think part of the reason that it goes so poorly in the end for poor abe yeah is that they didn't really think about the consequences of what they were falling into or at least aaron didn't abe was acutely aware of the consequences and got like neurotic about making sure that they didn't actually have them. That's true. Because Aaron was the one, or excuse me, was Abe the one who rented the hotel room the first time? Right. It was Abe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Abe makes sure it's, it's, it's so interesting. Time travel is presented as basically 
at, at least in Abraham, in, at least in Abe's brain, a single application technology. You can use this thing. You can only go back one way. You can only go back to a certain amount of time. You, the time traveler, have to remove yourself from the world. You have to go to another city and rent a hotel room and sit in there for the amount of time that you plan on being out of the time stream. The amount of time that there's two of you running around so that you don't affect any events yourself and so that you don't understand anything that is going to happen in the future. Mm-hmm. He bends over backwards to avoid all of the classic time travel paradoxes. And in doing that, you just cut away entire options of what time travel can be. Mm-hmm. But it's safe. So despite being so, 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 so careful, they still have physical effects that they suffer from time traveling. So at the end of the movie, there's a scene where um, one of the men turns to the other and says, okay, but here's the question. Why can't, why is my handwriting bad? Why is my handwriting so bad? It looks like a toddler's. And they both have suffered this. And the recap I watched explained that as though they have traveled in time because they've traveled in time back and forth so much, some of their atoms have moved just enough so they don't have muscular control right and the other thing i saw and this one was pure speculation but there's a moment when they're still in the garage where they stick their hands over the time over the time travel thing and, and like make a comment about like oh that static's really weird and and i read there was speculation that their hands are like a couple seconds in a different time stream, which that, that one is pretty brain breaking. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it manages to show that like, like anything, it has physical effects. It takes a physical toll. Their ears start bleeding for random reasons. Aaron specifically. And Aaron is the one who's traveling more as you find out during the end of the movie. Right. He's traveled back and forth so much more than Abe has. And it it seems like it's deteriorating in a way which just like just like any science, you need to control the thing and study its effects and figure out okay what is this going to do. Mm-hmm. It's the reason why we don't give kids mercury for like a cold anymore because <laughs> we figured out it does a bad thing. <laughs> um, but. Yeah, the just just consequence, mm-hmm. consequence, physical consequence, and like um, intentional consequence are such important themes. And the thing I appreciate about Abe so much, his downfall is the one thing you can't control is other people. Mm-hmm. You can plan and you can prep and you can advise and you can try to be safe. And the one thing you can't do is actually control what anyone else can do, which is how Aaron screws him over, basically. Yeah. So the reason that Aaron is time traveling so much, in addition to obvious financial gain of I can be so much richer, I can get so much more if I just try time travel and do bigger and bigger pulls on I believe it's the stock market that they're rigging Mm -hmm. also there is a party where one uh I believe it's Kara's ex brings a gun to the party because he's trying to do something unclear yeah it's like this thing of like he he tries to get with his ex-girlfriend who is Abe's current girlfriend and just for the randomness of reality is the kind of individual who, when she rejects him, he goes into his truck and he gets a shotgun. Yes. And causes a disturbance. Yes. So then Aaron travels back in time and back in time and back in time to sort of, 
perfect his heroism. Right. The one thing I'm still unclear about is what happens the first time. Because it seems like nobody ever gets shot. Nobody ever gets killed. They couldn't. If if future Aaron gets killed, he can't go back and affect right. the thing. Um, but he is like, he, he plays this same moment over and over and over again and figures out exactly how to play the situation so that he can rush the guy with a shotgun. He knows that the guy will never actually shoot and is able to come across as heroic. Yeah. And it's like, aside from the safety implications Aaron's motivation is very much selfish and he wants to be the hero. Mm -hmm. Like he doesn't seem to actually care about like, Oh, thank God I I have to learn how to do this right. So that nobody, you know, gets shot with a shotgun. It's like, no, 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 I'm going to be the big man. I'm going to be so cool. I'm going to be the hero of the party. Planning on talking to him. Just tell me if you were, I'm not going to be mad. Which there's okay. So there's Kara his girlfriend who we don't even technically meet we see her from far away at a party um we only hear her talked about Mm -hmm. and then there's rachel who the first time we meet her she is unloading the dishwasher while all of the men talk about engineer things so it's not great (laughs) no and it's just occurring to me now how this movie (laughs) Absolutely does not pass the Bechtel test. No, at all. Because I think, I think to your point, Rachel is the only speaking female character in the entire movie. Yep. So. And we only have one speaking person of color, and he is one of the engineers that the two main men go, he doesn't really matter. So we're told that the person of color doesn't matter. That's true, though. I will say in the filmmaker's defense on that point, at least, it's other people doing YouTube recaps being like, hey, that person doesn't actually matter. And given, again, the nature of the filmmaking, it seriously could have been that the guy just was not able to find, like, an actor of color to play the role. Now that's a little dubious. I think mm-hmm. there definitely um, there <laughs> there could be more to be done. Of course, especially on the front of like gender politics. But I want to give a, a little devil's advocacy, whether mm-hmm. that's uh, totally fair or not. <laughs> eh. Either way, social justice one two three. Woohoo. <laughs> the reveal of time travel is really fun. And like, you know, talking about this, this is a science fiction movie set in a real universe. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we've talked on the show before about how that creates different effects based on how seriously the movie is taking itself while having unserious events happening. And Primer takes itself 100% seriously to the point where I love how when Abe figures out time travel and, and, and more than just in concept, like the time travel of a person, he can't just tell Aaron. He plays it super coy and he like he sits him down and grabs him by the shoulders and is like, I'm going to show you something. You're going to think I'm messing with you. I promise you I would not do that what you're going to see is real and then hands him a pair of binoculars and you see a different version of Abe walking out of the storage unit. And it's like such a mind blowing revelation, but the intense care that goes into that reveal is what a real person would do. I know how this is going to sound. I know this is like a thing that you only see in movies but I promise you it's real. Here's the proof in front of your eyes. Yeah. To that end, at the beginning, we have a device that seems like narration. 
Mm-hmm. In the end, it's revealed that it's the character of Aaron talking to himself yep. on the phone. But it seems like narration, and in the narration, it reminded me of Psycho, how you have that voiceover of, like, I do this, and then I do this, oh. and I go here. But it's revealed to be similar, but it's the character talking to himself saying, this is what you're going to do, and at the end of it, you're going to have this result, but you're not going to talk back to me. And that, like... The illusion of Psycho is interesting because it's so menacing. Mm-hmm. But to your point, yeah, that's like, listen, we only have the time of this voicemail. Here's how this is going to be. Yeah. And the the fun part, and it, you know, it becomes the twist that that's who we're listening because it doesn't sound like Aaron. Mm-hmm. It's just distorted enough in a way where it it, it, it you don't know who's talking. But Aaron getting the voicemail in the context of the movie would have to recognize his own voice. And that's really cool. He gets a call and he says, oh, it's it's Rachel. I have to pick up. What if it's not, though? (laughs) What if it's past him calling him? And then he's like, oh, I can't talk right now. I'm with the dude that we're trying to fuck. Oh, my God. That would make a lot of sense, actually, yeah. Because he time travels with his phone. He time travels with his phone, and they figure... Like, there, there's a conversation where they're trying to figure out the mechanics of cell phones, and it's Aaron who actually asks. He's like, if I have the same cell phone in two different spots and it gets a call, what happens? And Abe, like, doesn't know. He hasn't thought about this. And he's like, uh, I, I think it just goes to the one that's the nearest. But that becomes an unreliable a wholly unreliable narrator sequence. God. Yeah, that is great because like it's the cell phone bit where you first start to be like, Oh, Oh, Aaron. Oh, you shitty person. Like you absolutely knew you were taking the cell phone, but you don't understand the depths of what he's doing. And like, I I wrote in my notes like, Oh, it's so interesting that Aaron instantly fails the moral test of time travel. But I was just talking about, getting the cell phone in the first place, not even what you would do with the cell phone and calling yourself and having conversations with yourself and just the depths that, that Aaron goes to. Yeah. It is such a fun reveal to figure out. This is a movie that I absolutely could rewatch and I'm sure get more from it. Sure. Sure. I'm, I'm really glad I watched that recap, but I also feel like I could have watched this probably three more times and understood it way better oh absolutely and and you know because the other thing is like so how much um there's so much that just isn't made clear there's a moment where kara's father has very clearly time traveled mm-hmm. and like he doesn't get any lines either it's all through the points of aaron and Abe being like okay wait no i saw him clean shaven the other day what is he doing outside of my house at two in the morning with a full beard like, what is happening? And they figure out that, okay, at some point in the future, something happens. We tell Thomas time travel exists. He comes back here for reasons. But this is already so far out of our control. And that is what convinces Abe that he needs to use the failsafe box and go back and start from scratch. And that's when you get the reveal that Aaron was one step ahead of him the whole time. Yeah. Is Aaron the one who's married to Thomas Granger's daughter? No, Abe is dating Thomas Thomas Granger's Granger's daughter. Case in point. This is a very confusing movie because I was like, well, what if he saw him outside of his house, but he didn't actually, and he's just saying that he did so that he's lying so for some reason like this whole thing yeah there's a lot that could be learned in reveals absolutely and And, re-reveals and knowing the twist and knowing what aaron's up to trying to figure out figure out in the movie chronologically okay when can we no longer trust him when does he do the thing Mm -hmm. and and you would get so much of that Mm -hmm. to the point of uh thomas granger though like 
he he touches Abe, but it's Abe from a different timeline, and that like makes him fall into a coma. And then they just straight up leave him in a hotel room. Like they give him a sedative that'll like keep him alive for a while, but then they just leave him. And that did not escape my notice. So they low-key murder her dad? The time-traveling version of her dad, yeah. Cool. That's great. Yeah. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to read this. And you're going to listen. And you're going to stay on the line. And you're not going to interrupt. You're not going to speak for any reason. (laughs) I really just think that this is a movie where... So you have a bunch of time-traveling movies. And I'm looking at, like... Okay, Back to the Future, and it's so corny, and it's mm-hmm. so unbelievably like, here we are with our time-traveling car that we have to get to the ex- this exact amount of time. Whereas this is like, this is a very adult time-traveling movie. Yeah. Where they don't treat the concept lightly. Right, it's, the emphasis isn't on the fiction, it's on the science. But they don't make it science-y. Right. They- sure. Well, no, but like my point is like, so, you know, Back to the Future is a, a fun family movie. Um, I'm trying to think of like even even time travel movies, science fiction movies that are serious in tone deal with the concept as a fun narrative device or this hand wavy science thing. Mm-hmm. To then, you know, go and have your movie on. Yeah. Primer doesn't hand wave the science. It just doesn't tell you. But it has the science locked down as like, here's how this would actually work. And the only way it can work. Um, a good point. So there's a movie called Looper. Looper is this like really fun, super mature time travel movie. That's all about like time traveling hitmen. And, you know, you send somebody you want to assassinate back in time and they get shot. Shane Carruth consulted on Looper because I guess he became friends with Ryan Johnson, who directed that movie. And Ryan Johnson said Shane took one look at the script. You know, he read through it. He laughed, handed back to me and was like, your time travel's all wrong. Okay. So, like, that's that's the thing. Primer is, quote unquote the movie where time travel is right so you would say it's a primer on time travel yes (laughs) oh you're so annoyed with me i can hear it in your voice (laughs) i mean yeah i i figure that's how it got the name to be perfectly honest but yes it is indeed a primer speaking of primers For every movie, we try and find the prime example of excellence in a movie. You're welcome for that wonderful segue. Did you find something in this movie that deserves an Oscar? I really do. Like, this one actually deserves... This is a meritous achievement. I would like to give Primer the Oscar for most jobs on an indie film. Most jobs? As in most people had jobs? No. The most jobs that one guy is doing at the same time. Okay. And I am speaking, I mentioned it earlier, about Shane Carruth, who is the writer, director, star, because he plays Aaron, editor, and composer. Oh my god. Like, directing, acting, okay, sure. Mel Gibson did it in Braveheart. It's not that hard of a job, especially on an indie film. Throw in the fact that you wrote it. Okay, it's, you know, it's, this is your first film, this is your baby, no one else was going to write it. Like, okay, you do those three things, gotcha. Then you throw in the fact that he's editing it and composed the score, neither of which were things he knew how to do. That's part of why it took him five years to do this, is he was just like, no, I'm not going to let anybody, like, touch my baby, I'm going to edit my movie. Oh shit, I didn't uh, get coverage. Um... You know what? It's fine. I'm also going to learn music theory and score this movie because it's the tone that I want to set. Shane Carruth did five jobs that like you would normally just have one person do each of those five things. They reached five hard jobs 
And so I think he really deserves a little bit of recognition for his work there. Yeah, that is incredibly impressive. Thank you for bringing that up. That's something I would not have noticed. You're so welcome. Yay. <laughs> it's that thing where the credits go up and it's, you know, I've I've made total like amateur home movies. Like this is stuff like you show your family and you, you write it all on paper. And it's just like starring Andy Boel, written by Andy Boel, acted by Andy Boel, camera work by Andy Boel, directed by Andy Boel, fight choreography by Andy Boel. It's it's the like culmination of of that childhood fantasy phenomenon. Sure, except in real grown up life. Exactly. <laughs> what about you? What what Oscar would you give Primer? Oh, I would absolutely give Primer the Oscar for best throwaway bit. Okay. So there is a line in the movie where Aaron is talking about how. You know how NASA spent eight years developing a pen that could write upside down in zero gravity. And then Russia cracked it. And Abe says, how'd they crack it? And he goes, they brought a pencil. But the other half of that story is that the the reason NASA spent eight years developing a pen is that pencils use graphite and graphite is flammable. <laughs> and space rockets tend to, you know blow up for reasons, especially in their infancy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the fact that they didn't even consider that other half of it is so indicative of all of the science and all of the implications of time travel in the rest of the movie. And the theme of the movie in itself, because again, big mind blowing part. What if Aaron knew that? And didn't care. Yeah. Because Aaron is Russia taking a pencil into space. Mm -hmm. And Abe is the one who wants to spend eight years to make a ballpoint pen work. Yes, exactly. I love that. That is so great. And I I didn't know that at all. I, I think I'd heard that anecdote before, but I never knew the part about like, no, we thought that through. We just didn't want to die. We just didn't want to go into space and, you know, explode. So... That's a great Oscar. Thank you. You're welcome. Completely unrelated and unplanned, you should read The First Wives Club, which is a movie Mm. about all of the wives of the original astronauts, I think, on Apollo 13. Yes, that is the one that made it. Yes. So, it's really super good and it's all about like their lives and their marriage and their fears and the moral implications in their marriage as they go off to space. Is that also our reading wreck? Yeah, let's say it. Because <laughs> the only other thing I could think would be like a, a Carl Sagan book on quantum mechanics or something. Oh, but oh, but his whole bit about the blue dot and how we examine space and ourselves is absolutely worth reading, so... Uh, I won't say that's our reading rec, but I will link to that part in the show notes. Yay. Excellent. Okay. (laughs) You know what else is excellent? Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon. Mm -hmm. Uh Mm-hmm. All right, Andy, would you like to go first? I will go ahead. So I was able to uh, connect Primer to Kevin Bacon in two moves, and I thought that was actually pretty impressive because again, we've talked like nobody had a career before this Shane Carruth gained a career, but like he's mostly now a writer and director. The only uh, person in this movie that I know of who went and had like an actual legit career is the guy who played Abe, who is David Sullivan. Yes. David Sullivan was in Argo with John Goodman, who was in a movie called death sentence with Kevin Bacon. Yes. Yeah. I also used uh, David Sullivan. I think you have to. This is I one think of those. You have to. This is one of those ones where hard mode is get get to Kevin Bacon without David Sullivan. <laughs> David Sullivan was also in Skateland with Brett Cullen, who is in Apollo thirteen uh, with Kevin Bacon. The cl- I, I was thinking about this the other day. Like it's going to become a thing where it's like. The Apollo 13 corridor, the the Mystic <laughs> River Canyon, the, uh, the the Woodsman Path Through the Woods. 
and how these cornerstone movies are just going to keep popping up. And I'm not mad about it. I'm not mad about it either. I am also not mad about the other thing we do every episode of Cult Fiction, which is go ahead and pick our next movie through the application of a random number generator and therefore put our hands into the Hollywood crypt. We're getting very close. We have 303 movies. Oh, so close. So Well, so so close to breaking 300, I guess. is <laughs> Because we have not actually yet done that. This, this is episode 38, and we're, we're whittling down the list, is all I mean. It's, it's literally whittling, but 235. And 235. <laughs> 235 is the Robert Rodriguez alien possession horror movie, The Faculty. Yes. This movie kicks ass. I haven't seen this since I was a kid. Oh, I'm very, very excited. I'm I'm actually incredibly happy. This is a this is like a really fun, modernized invasion of the body snatchers. And um returning to cult fiction will be Clea Duvall. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so uh, you can find The Faculty on Amazon Prime if you uh, decide to go ahead and do a uh, trial version of the CBS subscription. You can also find it for rent on YouTube and Vudu, and it's on something called Pluto TV, which I've never heard of before, but... It's not a planet, it's fine. Yeah, you know. So with that, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to follow us, you can keep up on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also rate and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time when we discover if either Stephanie or I have been uh, taken over by alien brain worms as we watch Robert Rodriguez's The Faculty. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell. Andy Bowell.